Welcome to the I Belong Here podcast. Please join us on this journey as we will navigate the world meeting fantastic women who are real scientific role models. Together, we wish to inspire the next generation of girls who dream about being scientists. Look out for our male ambassadors too, as they do believe in the representation women deserve and earn in science. Stay tuned for amazing guests, check out the podcast description for credits and acknowledgements, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain. Hey guys, so welcome to a new episode of the I Belong Here podcast. Uh, so today I have a really nice uh, guest with me. Her name is Daisy. Hey Daisy. Hello. So Daisy here is a Twitter celebrity uh, <laughs> and I'm really excited to have her with me. Uh, she does a lot of science communication and you know a lot of things with uh, companies such as uh, BioRender and right now she has a really beautiful background. <laughs> done with BioRender so, so <laughs> shout out to BioRender as well for giving us these amazing graphs you know for thesis and papers <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm gonna let the audience know a bit more about you um, so Daisy Shu completed her optometry degree from the University of New, New South Wales in Sydney in Australia she then worked as a clinical optometrist for two years before starting her PhD at the University of Sydney in Australia in the Lens Research Laboratory supervised by Professor Frank Lovicu. Upon completion of her PhD, she then flew to Boston in the United States to start her postdoc in St. Genie's Laboratory at Shippen's Eye Research Institute of Mass Eye and Ear, Harvard Medical School. Okay, so first of all, I want to say that this is... Uh, impressive like this is amazing uh you know medical degrees and journey and you basically cross the world you know for where are you at this point so let me just start by saying that this is like super impressive um so um i have a lot of questions about this obviously uh your your uh, research it's really eye uh focus right like eye research and ophthalmology and so on so i wanted to ask you um have you been always interested in eye? How this interest came into your career or perhaps from high school uh, maybe? And how did you achieve, um, uh, like how is this research? Like what do you, how do you, what do you exactly do in, in the lab? Um, yeah, so I am pretty much obsessed with the eyes <laughs> um, and the visual system. And I, yeah, so ask me any questions that you Great. have and I'll be happy to answer them. Um, yeah, so with the eye fascination, I think it all started when I, I wore my first pair of glasses, I think, ah. in, when I was like 12, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, so I guess like, I was just so curious about the optometry experience, um, because I would go in and answer these questions and have these lights shone on me. And all of a sudden I could see clearly, and I was yeah. so fascinated by that. I was like, what is happening here and fast forward till now like I, I completely understand and I know like the processes behind how mm -hmm. we can help people see and uh, study uh, what's 
exactly happening uh, to their ocular tissues mm -hmm. um, that may be causing any issues uh, in their vision. So I think, yeah, it definitely all started when I first visited the optometrist and um, yeah, could remember the fact that, yeah, I, I could suddenly see uh, the world so much more clearly. <laughs> I feel you, I feel you because I've been blind since I was 11 as well. I usually wear oh contact lenses. Um, but I have like a really bad uh, prescription is quite high. So I feel you because if I remove my lenses now, I will not be able to see my laptop. Like this is how bad it is. So I feel you with, you know, I see the world when I put my lenses or the glasses. <laughs> so you just yeah. continue. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I basically uh, just got fascinated with that, did optometry, worked as an optometrist for two years, um, mm. and then was really curious about research because during my optometry degree, I had the opportunity to actually do a summer research program. And I highly mm. recommend that any, um, any people who are interested in research and are currently undergrads who don't get that on-hands lab experience yeah. uh, to just volunteer and just go out there and ask um, any labs, even our lab, we're constantly getting uh, summer students coming through and just, just, they're just so curious. They, they can spend as long as they like here. We can train them up to do any sort of techniques. Hmm. And now because it's like COVID, um, we're having a lot of summer students volunteer in a more um, remote setting. So yeah. you can yeah. still, you can still volunteer even now um, and do some data analysis and stuff like that. Um, but basically I did six weeks uh, at the Safe Sight Institute of Sydney Eye Hospital. And um, I was just so intrigued because I got mm. to mix things, I got to wear gloves. And that was not something that you do much in um, optometry school, it's very clinical, uh, yes. so you see patients uh, and like testing their eyes sort of thing. Uh, I never got to like uh, dissect tissues or mm -hmm. like mix chemicals. So I was like, oh my God, this is so fun. <laughs> and yeah, so then um, I was uh, super inspired um, by that experience. And my mentor at the time, Dr. Michelle Manikin, she she basically said, uh, you're a natural at this. Um, mm -hmm. Highly recommend that you do a PhD. And then I thought about that and I was like, that was always in the back of my mind, even mm -hmm. when I was working as a clinical optometrist for about two years after I graduated. Mm -hmm. And then pretty much I decided to go for it and just to start my PhD. Mm. So that's, um, so that's, uh, it's funny that you say that. Uh, so we, in, in our university where I work, we, we have also students uh, coming, you know, in and out different periods of the year. But like three or four years ago, I think I had a, a visiting student. Uh, he was studying medicine and he basically had the option to have like a gap year. So he could go to a lab in the university to do research. And when he came to my lab, he was awesome. He was so funny, uh, so nice to work with him. And when, I, when he came to the lab, I asked him, so how is this, you know, you are studying medicine, you are clearly doing like a clinical and medical degree. And he, he was like, well, I wanted to try one year in a research lab, you know, because we don't get to do these things in a clinical practice, if that makes sense. So he was really curious and it, it matches with what you were saying, you know, he was really curious about, you know, putting, I don't know, reagents together, study cell culture, you know, these kind of things. He was really, and he was really good at it. He was scared at the beginning, <laughs> bless him, yeah. uh, but he did really well at the end. So it really matches with, with what you say, you know? Yeah. It's just so fun to mix things and watch yeah. 
<laughs> colors change. Yes, colors <laughs> change all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Yeah. Um so uh right now you are a postdoc, right? Uh in yeah. in Boston, is it? Yeah, yeah, in the St. Genese Laboratory. Yeah. Hi. So what is exactly your your research, um, like what do you exactly do in, in the lab besides changing the color of things, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, funnily enough, I did my first ELISA yesterday. Oh, ever. yay! Congrats! <laughs> so much, I know, it was so exciting for me because everyone talks about ELISAs and I, I basically finally got to do one and the color change is so vibrant. It, is, it was like... Yeah so blue and then like immediately yellow uh, with the stop solution i was like whoa, whoa. i'm missing out i'm gonna do more lizers now um, yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> so currently i am studying the role of metabolism and mitochondria mm-hmm. how do mitochondria change during diseases and in particular mm-hmm. we're intrigued by um how metabolism plays a role in macular degeneration, Mm -hmm. which is a leading cause of blindness in the elderly population. And that disease basically causes a black spot in the middle of your vision. So Mm. central vision loss, which is terrible because we pretty much use that all the time, like to do anything, basically reading, driving, um, anything we do, we always fixate at the center of our field. Mm. Um, so, So it is very damaging to have macular degeneration. So trying to find um, how metabolism plays a role and if we can block those metabolic pathways that are changing, uh, leading to that macular degeneration, then we can then develop new therapies for macular degeneration. Hmm. Wow, that's that's really cool. So would you say that your research is like for, for preventing that to happen, some sort of a study, basic, like maybe the mechanisms uh, of the disease and then try to prevent it, obviously? Yeah, yeah. Currently, it's more of a prevention mm. mechanism. Uh, we haven't like induced the sort of disease yeah. and then try to uh, reverse it sort of thing. So yeah, currently it's uh, so... Um, yeah, very preliminary kind of um, state, and we're just like trying to stop it at the same time. Like if we give the the treatment that induces the macular degeneration, yeah, uh, blood, then then we get the the drug at the same time. Um, mm. But like beyond that, we would then look into whether it can uh, block it uh, after the fact, after mm-hmm. the um, disease is occurring. Can we have the drug, and can we? Uh, slow the progress or can yeah. we uh, stop it halt it completely or could we potentially even reverse it that would be mm. amazing to reverse the damage well that's amazing because my next question for you was at what point would you obviously you said that your your research is like prevention at this point but i was going to ask you at what point will you give this to the patient um because i was i was going to ask you then as well um if they already have the degeneration could you give it and then perhaps reverse it? You kind of answered my question then at the end of your answer, but <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, right now it's so preliminary. It's literally yeah. in vitro, like just mm. like in the incubator with some cell lines. So it's like really <laughs> far away. I hope within my lifetime I can <laughs> accomplish that. That would be cool. I'm pretty um, sure you're like, going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would be like a dream come true. Mm. Um, yeah, like it's it's very early stages, and then yeah. kind of after we've like got that down pat, we'll, we'll move into more like in vivo models, and then getting that down pat, and then 
so on and of so course. forth. It's quite a process, yeah. Yes, well, folks, science is a long process anyway. So you know, you need to start. You need to start like where what what Daisy was saying at the you know preliminary start with the cells. Uh, so you use, I assume, uh, human cell lines uh, for eye cells or yeah. Yeah, we have, uh, so I study a very special type of cell called mm. the epithelial cell, mm. um, which is really interesting because it's an epithelial cell. I've always studied epithelial cells, even yeah. in my PhD, I was studying lens epithelial cells, and I also got to study uh, a bit of corneal epithelial cells. So all, mm. basically, I love epithelial cells. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And um, yeah, looking at different connections between how they behave, and they seem to behave very differently in different uh, ocular tissues. Mm. So the retinal pigment epithelial cells are super special because they actually express pigmentation, um, but they're of a neural um, uh, like origin. So that that's actually a really rare thing because usually our pigmented cells come from um, like the mesenchyme sort of uh, neural crest cells and stuff like from during the embryo stage uh, mm. so it's really interesting that neural uh, neuroectogen derived um, tissues can, can produce pigment and mm. uh, lead to this pigmented type of epithelial cell in our eyes mm. so uh, like pardon me if i'm not saying this correctly but um you know i will not have thought of the eye as a very cellular tissue you know, because I study other tissues in, in the body in my research. And obviously it's not something, you know, like, I don't know, skin or something like that, you know, that is literally full of cells. So it, it's funny that the, and it's really interesting that you say these things, because like I said, I will not have thought of the eye to contain, uh, like, let alone two types of cells that they do two completely different stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's crazy that you say that, because I feel that way about other organ types. Like, really? I <laughs> understand what you're saying right now because for me the eye is just like the most complex organ with I can name like probably like a million types of different cells within the eye yeah um and like all the different components right and then uh if if I was to apply that knowledge to the kidney or the liver I would be like clueless I, yes. I would be like thinking there's just two cell types I don't know <laughs> I actually have no idea yes it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because when we do our research in like a particular tissue or like an organ or something that, you know, all organs in the human body are so complex that then we obviously we focus our research in like one or maybe in one system. And then we, we, we don't know anything about what's going on in the rest of the body, you know, because I, I study more or less like musculoskeletal research. Um, so then when I think about the eye and these things, it's like, wow that's also happening, you know, in the same body <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to restore or, or whatever. So it's, and also in the eye, you know, you have a lot of nerves uh, because obviously because of the brain and everything. So for me, it's like fascinating, you know, and kind of like, again, excuse me if I'm doing, if I'm saying this wrong, but the eye is also quite isolated organ, you know, because obviously it's, it's, it's connected to the brain and everything, but then it's, you know, it's just there sitting <laughs> You know, so it, is, yeah. it should have its own microenvironment as well. So it's uh, it makes sense as well that the cells uh, behave differently depending on those stimulus because it will be completely different from another organ that is exposed to more stuff such as the heart, for example, or, or kidney or something. Yeah, there's so much um, special attributes to the eye, actually. They mm -hmm. have um, immune privilege oh, of, wow. the, um, of the eye. So 
are basically the eye is kind of in, as you said, it's sort of like a, in its own little bubble. It's, mm. it's actually protected against um, any sort of, uh, there, there are barriers to certain pathogens mm. and things like that um, that prevent the eye from specifically getting targeted. And another really interesting fact about the eye is that the lens uh, within the eye, which is what I did my PhD on, the lens is encapsulated um, within this uh, thick basement membrane called mm. the lens capsule, and it just keeps growing. So it contains the older cells in your body. And if you cut oh. through, um, it's like the, a tree trunk. It, you can see the history of your life just by cutting through the lens because wow. um, the lens cells just keep growing and growing and they pack in more tightly in the center of the lens. Yeah. Um, so the components within the lens, there's only two cell types, lens epithelial cells and lens fiber cells. Those cells within the lens basically never get to see and interact the the like external environment. And so there is actually a particular very rare disease where you can actually get an allergic reaction to the components in the lens. If, if you pierce the lens capsule and the components come out, then they, the body almost reacts as if it's a foreign object because Ooh. it's never actually met the components of the lens because it's always been encased within the yeah. basic memory. Um, so, yeah, so there's lots of interesting aspects of the lens. Wow, that's... Uh... Like you are amazing me for the rest of the week, honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is so so cool. And obviously, um, so when 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 we are born, uh, we already have cells there, or or do they grow? As, yeah. Like when yeah, we are born and const constantly grow, like you say. Yeah, it's actually um, uh, we've got the primary lens uh, fiber cells mm. and. Um, And then we've also got the uh, lens epithelial cells. Mm. So that's what we start with when we're basically born. And, and then um, we start to pack on these secondary lens fiber cells. And mm. these keep packing on and packing on. And in fact, the lens gets bigger and bigger as we get older. Uh, mm. So in old age, the lens actually takes up too much space. And that's one of the models, of, like models to explain why we can't see up close. Do you know how like old people... Um, they have to like hold out like a piece of paper really far. Yeah, um, this, this happens to me as well now. And yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's called um, presbyopia, or basically you're getting old. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, it's so sad, but it hits like everyone at about, I would say like about 45 people start to say, oh, I can't read up close very yeah. well anymore. Yeah. Um, and that, There's lots of mechanisms to explain it, but one of them is actually the fact that the lens gets bigger and bigger with age because, as I said, it just keeps growing. And so you can imagine if something keeps growing, uh, then it's going to take up more space. Well, yeah, and if it, it takes has, up it has to space, collapse or something, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually so robust that it stays, it keeps its shape wow. and it's, um, it becomes more rigid. Yeah. Unfortunately, that rigidity means that uh, it can't, Uh, accommodate that's that's a technical term but it can't like it can't change its shape in order for us to read up close so mm. right now our um especially when we're young our uh, lens can accommodate easily it can change its shape so you can read at any distance you like far near it can just it has that flexibility to go um to focus at any depth you like mm. but when you get older when you hit that 45 mark and it just 
unfortunately just gets weaker and weaker with age. Yeah. Uh, but that accommodation um, of the lens weakens. And there's two mechanisms. One being, well, there's many mechanisms, but one of them is that lens getting rigid and growing bigger. And the other one is the muscle that pulls on the lens called the ciliary muscle also um, changes its uh, anatomical uh, positioning. That's mm-hmm. one theory as well. And also its ability to contract the, um, to contract that uh, lens muscle, mm-hmm. uh, the lens, um, lens shape. Yeah. Into, uh, the correct positioning to get that focal point. Yeah. Wow, this is also so fascinating. <laughs> I'm learning. This is a masterclass in eye. <laughs> yes. This is so cool. Um, right, so I can see that you are really interested in the eye. Uh, that came across, yes, and you also know a lot of stuff about it. So I will assume that you will continue your research, right, after this postdoc or maybe um, in the next steps in your career, right? You will keep following this path, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that is like my dream to yeah. run my own lab one day um, and oh, keep yay. studying the eye. Yeah, that would be like my absolute dream, like just to have my own independent research lab yeah. and have like a team of people who um, are just equally as curious about the eye as me. <laughs> yes. So that's uh, that's my dream as well. I also want to have my own lab, you know, my own research oh, lab. and have. Yeah, I really want to. Right now I'm also in my postdocs. Um, so I, I think I still, I'm still far, you know, I still need a bit more training and, you know, Same. you know, publications, the process to get, you know, to get your own lab, et cetera, and grants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's also um, a dream uh, of mine, you know, to have a lot of curious people wondering about the lab, you know, all excited about science. Uh, so I feel, I feel what you say. <laughs> Yay. So that's, that's so cool. So Obviously, we, we, we heard a bit about your, your story, you know, your trajectory throughout your career. So where, where exactly are you from? What was your starting point? Um, my, my starting point in terms of um, where my career started? Yeah, like where are you from? Where, where did you, you know, high school and all of that? And then you... Oh, oh, my God. Yes. Um, <laughs> I actually, believe it or not, I actually attended three different high schools. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I'm from Sydney, Australia and mm-hmm. I'm born and raised in Sydney. Uh, so I've just attended um, many schools um, in, well, so yeah, the, the schooling system I think is quite different in different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, like now that I, I'm in America, um, I hear like, like middle school and elementary school and stuff. We didn't have those terms. We just yeah. had like, Real simple, just primary school, which is kindergarten to year seven, uh, year six, mm-hmm. and then high school is year seven to year twelve. I don't know in the UK if that's the same system as adopted as well. Uh, well, I am actually not sure because I did all my education in Spain, uh, in my home oh. country. Um, so yeah. we we have like yeah, we have like kindergarten and stuff. Then you go to school until you are like eleven, and then you go to high school until you are 16 that's when you can decide by yourself to continue at school or you can just quit you can work at 16 in spain it's legal to start working if you want to continue we have like two years of prep for university or college so we have two years that you basically decide or I can go more to the science uh, scenario or I can more to, towards humanities or economics. So you will spend two years focusing on what you 
ideally want to do in university. And then we have a really big exam. I think it's more like the, I, oh, I can't remember the name in the UK, but it's like a big exam that you get a mark. And depending on that mark, you get in different units of your choice. Um, and then you start uni and then you can continue uh, forever, really. <laughs> yeah, like us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. Right. So, so you did this, uh, you went to school uh, in Sydney, then you obviously work as an optometrist, then you did your PhD. Uh, now you are in, Bo in Boston with your postdocs. So how was this transition? I know you said that you really... Uh, we're missing that kind of practical application but how was this transition from the clinical uh, practice to like lab research because obviously you you kind of get different things from both worlds right uh, when you go to the lab you don't have any patient maybe you can have I don't know maybe, maybe you collect cells from different patients or uh, if you go to in vivo models perhaps you can get eyes from human or maybe from animals but obviously you forget about the patients. And when you are clinical research, you don't do any kind of the lab stuff. So how was this transition or how, how exactly, why did exactly you wanted to transition and uh, perhaps continue towards the research? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Because, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of like how far I've come. Of because you I have. literally oh my God. started, <laughs> like I, I literally started my PhD not knowing how to prepare. Oh, like, I didn't here. even know how. Yeah, yeah, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I didn't even know what an antibody was. Oh yes. So, um, I yeah, it's crazy. Like I've come uh, really far in terms of like understanding the world of molecular and cellular biology. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, animal research as well, which is something like yeah, as you mentioned, I never exposed to that uh, no, as a yeah. clinical optometrist. Um, and yeah, I still worked as a clinical optometrist and supervised students in the optometry clinic at the University of New South Wales, where I studied. Uh, so I still got that grounding. I, I always loved doing that because it reminded me of why I'm doing it. Because when course. you're at the lab, it's, it's so far removed from ever becoming something that could enter clinical settings. Exactly. And so when I'm in the clinic, like it, it's so good for me just to like experience that again, that, um, that kind of one-on-one -on -one patient uh, experience and, yeah. and just get reminded of uh, the end goal. Hmm. That's, that's really, really pertinent that you say that as well. Cause when I, when I did my, I did a master's before I started my PhD and my master had one year of a lab uh, research-based internship kind of thing. And like you, like I went to the lab and you know, my supervisor was showing me the pipettes and everything. I was like, what's that? Like, what do you do with that? <laughs> How do you yeah. handle that? Um, obviously, let alone pipette correctly, because that's a whole science, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I don't even know if I do that right just to this day. <laughs> honestly, it's a, it's a science. And when you explain to people, for example, when I have a student in the lab that they don't pipette well, then you giggle, but not for them, obviously, for, bless them, but you giggle because you see yourself in them, you know, like, oh, I also didn't know how to handle this liquid, you know, what, what is this button? What is this do? <laughs> yeah, it's like go up or down. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. And let alone the, the cells, you know, I didn't know anything about cell biology or molecular biology when I started my project. So it's definitely um, like something to, to bear in mind, you know, when you start in the lab. So I completely feel what you were saying. Um, mm -hmm. 
so obviously you said you tell us a bit more about uh, this transition in between the two worlds. Would you say that this was a particular challenge in your career uh, or you faced, you know, sometimes when, especially in, in research and especially if you go to academia, you do these very long paths in your career, you know, you start to study in seriously studying perhaps high school and university and then you go to grad school you never stop studying really or research even if you are a postdoc that doesn't mean that you are stopping learning you are constantly studying and reading so would you say this was a particular challenge for you to start your your career in in research uh, do you have any specific role models or, or help throughout your career especially when you flew you know from Australia to Boston that's literally crossing the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um, it is it's like yeah. a 25 hour flight or something oh like two flights. it's ridiculous that's that's yeah. really scary I hate <laughs> flying I hate flying um I only take planes so far uh, obviously not now with COVID, but to fly to my country, it's a two hours flight from the UK and I die. Like <laughs> I, when, when we land, I want to kiss the ground, honestly, every wow. single time I hate flying. Um, uh, it's just something that I cannot, I cannot tolerate. But anyway, besides my phobias, <laughs> what would you like to tell us a bit more about uh, these questions that I was raising earlier? Yeah, I had a lot of role models, actually, um, mm. and people who were just so supportive. Um, and I constantly, like, just reach out to them and they would tell me, you know, these are some next steps you can consider doing, supporting me, writing reference letters. I'm mm. so grateful. Um, and, yeah, it's so important to have these people in your life, like, yeah. who are just looking out for you. Uh, and, and they're already a few steps ahead. They've been through the processes. Mm. Um, and so and that that's something that I, I like to... Um, also observe like what are they up to next like what should I be looking out for um, on what's next on the horizon uh, for someone in it, who's trying to get into that um, academia uh, research setting and establish their own lab mm -hmm. um, my PhD supervisor is um, constantly supportive and uh, even to this day like as in I'm, I've left the lab but mm. we're still in communication and it's fantastic that I know that he's there for me, he's, he's there to support me uh, mm. whenever I need. Um, and in fact, he, he actually went to, uh, he, he's born and raised in, actually he's born in Italy, but he, mm. uh, he pretty much grew up in um, Australia. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he also did his PhD at the University of Sydney. Um, and, and funny story actually that he, um, well, it's not that funny. It's <laughs> probably very standard. <laughs> Um, that he's, um, his PhD supervisor was also my secondary auxiliary PhD supervisor. So Aww. it was kind of like in, in, um, in, in the family, but yeah. also like they just kept in contact throughout their whole career. Oh, that's uh, so when nice. he, yeah, he did his PhD, um, and then, um, went overseas to America as well. He went to Texas, mm. uh, the Baylor College of Medicine. And then uh, he did his postdoc, came back um, to the same lab, mm -hmm. which is uh, so fantastic. And there he was nurtured and, um, you know, uh, allowed to establish his own lab within the setting of his uh, PhD yeah. uh, laboratory. And that um, enabled him to set up his own and establish his own uh, sort of research direction, mm. uh, slightly distinct from 
of course, what he uh, his PhD mentor was doing, and then yeah. he was then able to establish himself. That's that's so nice, you know, to have that um, that support and also to continue that that support even when you leave the lab, you know, and even your your supervisor. Um, having contact with his supervisor and you know everything is inside the family you know (laughs) so that's so cool Um, so you when you transition from the you know from the clinical uh, practice to the to the research even if you had these these role models or supports uh, because that's really important you know to reach out when you need it rather than holding it in if that makes sense well, do you, do you have uh, challenges, you know, to focus on the lab, forget about the clinical practice, try to understand the very basics of it? Um, because for me, that was really challenging, you know, let alone understand the science behind the project. I needed to understand how a lab works and how to, it, it might sound silly, but how to manage your time, you know? Mm. Oh, that's a constant issue for me, managing time. <laughs> I, I don't even know like if I'll ever be able to feel comfortable with how much time I have for everything. And yes. like, I don't know, maybe it's just an internal thing that I always have to struggle with. Like, because I do, I do like to do a lot of things. And yeah. so oh, I like accumulating a pile of things that I have to do. And it's like just a backlog of things I have to get through and yes. yeah so time management I'm always like trying to find you know hacks for it but at the end of the day it's really just um just getting the stuff done yes um, <laughs> yeah yeah I mean well to be honest time management is something that um you keep learning about it you know it's it, it's not like when you go to PhD you already know how to manage your time it's something that you know you need to learn uh while you progress in your career um, I, I, I'm still guilty of planning these massive experiments with a lot of analysis. And then when I look at the calendar and then I look at the hours of the day, it's like, all right, I need to be a bit more realistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, because an issue that I have is that if I have a really long to-do list and I don't do it, I feel super bad. Oh, I'm the same. Oh, oh my oh. gosh. I am the absolute same. I actually came to a big revelation recently. Okay, tell us about that. (laughs) I I must tell you. Please (laughs) tell me. (laughs) Basically, I realized that I can't use to-do lists. They actually give me anxiety. Okay. And every single sort of like uh, productivity tip, like the top tip is always make a to-do list and break it down into smaller activities or actions that, and that, that helps to define things and make it like more achievable. And that makes so much sense to me. But for me, I realized that the energy required to break a task down into its individual components was actually yeah. too much energy. And it was it meant that I couldn't use the energy to do the actual task. Oh my god, okay, so makes sense. I, and then and then looking at the like I know the endless list that you were talking about was giving me anxiety. And so yes. I realized that. I'm just someone who doesn't work well with to-do lists. Yeah. And that's, I actually feel so much, I, it was just a sudden sense of relief when I realized that I didn't need to make to-do lists anymore because I realized that that, that is more effective for me. <laughs> and so I guess like I saved time for myself in a sense yeah. and I got rid of that to-do list task of making the to-do list. <laughs> to be honest, that's that's fantastic to to realize because this is something I tell my students or someone that um, 
starts in science. It, you don't need to do what someone else is doing because what works with someone, it doesn't have to work for you. And that's also, I think, the beauty of it, you know, like realizing what works for you. How do you feel the most productive? I mean, I don't ever want to give you a to-do list, you know, <laughs> if it's going <laughs> to give you the anxiety because that's, that's yeah. really bad. And when we have uh, students in the lab and they are a bit, you know, overwhelmed about everything, sometimes they ask you how you do the things and it's like, okay, this is what I do, but this is because all the years that I have of experience have become this in turn, if that makes sense. But that doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. You need to find your pace, how to manage your time, how to, you know, divide your experiments throughout the day, which experiments you want to do first. Um, so that's a really important revelation, but also a really nice thing to to teach to people, you know, like if you don't like to do lists, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do lists. No, no, yeah, no. Just to, um, just to like, uh, build on that point, um, when I first started learning laboratory techniques such as how to Western blood, I actually shadowed uh, different people within the lab. And I think I got five different kind of uh, approaches to Western blotting. So well, there yeah. would always be a, a slight tweak to, you know, what, how their technique. And so I think it is great to actually shadow multiple different people. Indeed, and therefore yes. you can you can you can combine and collate whatever you like and then create your own technique from that and so um yeah so you're trying out new things and just playing around with it uh can help you refine and establish your own um uh yeah your own style and technique of doing something mm. that's uh, and that's really beautiful isn't it because when I, when I started in my master's, or obviously when you started your, your PhD, you know, from zero, you know, from the very ground, you tend to, maybe imitate is not the correct word, but you tend to mimic what your mentor is teaching you. You try to do the same things. And then obviously that, that will work for you at the beginning because you are learning. But then the beauty is that when you grow and you progress in your career, you do the things as you wish, you know, because it works for you and you get the stuff done, like you said. So that's also the, the beauty, you know, at least in my, in my, in my view, you know, I mean, for me, research is the best job in the world. So I always see it pretty, but. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It's just so flexible, so much fun, always yeah. something yeah. new and unexpected. Yes. Whether if it's good or bad, there is always something unexpected. A lot of bad, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, but uh, the good things, um, yeah, they make up for it. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, especially with the cells, uh, you, one day you look at them, it's like, why do, why do you look like this? I talk with my cells. So when I look at them under the microscope and sometimes they are funny, it's like, what are you doing this? Why are you trying to tell me? Answer me. You know, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm the same. I like call them my babies. Oh, yes. Like, oh, my I'm God. Now, I am so happy right now. Jason, <laughs> I my mom. babies. I found someone else that calls babies to the cells. I've never yeah. found anyone that does this besides me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so happy that we are having this interview and I found someone else that calls babies to the Yay. cells. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm learning so much, you know, from your, your experiences, your journey, um, your research in particular. Um, but I'm curious, um, now that we are heading towards the, the last kind of section or, or block of the interview, the podcast of this episode, I'm curious to know um, your opinion and what you think about, you know, 
Women in STEM, this podcast is about showcasing brilliant women like you, that, you know, you are smashing it, you are rocking it, uh, you, you do your thing, um, you are, you know, conquering your, your, your own research career, if that makes sense. And I, I, it's something that I admire so much. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here, uh, and I think this deserves to be, you know, share with the world, you know, these fantastic testimonies of, of brilliant women that are doing this day by day. And um, like you said before, oh, now I'm realizing how far I've come. And it's, of course, you know, you, you are this, I don't know, brilliant scientist that does these things day by day. So uh, do you want to tell us a bit more, you know, about what do you think about the incorporation of women in STEM? What do you think about the whole um, movement and everything? Yeah, oh, I'm so touched that you know, by your kindness. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and I'm so like uh, grateful to be featured on this podcast and share Thank my, you. <laughs> my story. Um, yeah, I think the women in STEM is is critical. Uh, mm. I think just if we look through history uh, and and try to um, understand how women have come so far mm. uh, in establishing the right to even um, participate in science. The right, and, that's, and, that's the correct word, yes, the right just to do it. Yeah, and then now, um, I mean, there's so many more women in STEM, and it's about just, um, I mean, like, when we think about uh, the cartoon um, standard image of a scientist, it's yes. pretty much like an old um, grey-bearded uh, man with glasses, I guess. That is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think yeah, it's about normalizing what it looks like to be a scientist. Scientists don't look like that, um, and, and that's actually not. In fact, I would say that um, those people technically don't do lab work. They no. sit on the bench. <laughs> that's actually so, true. They are usually professors. <laughs> they are away from exactly. the lab. <laughs> yeah, they're just at their computers all the time. So uh, yeah, the the world is changing. Um, science. Uh, is is yeah it, it, it's progressing and mm. it's more inclusive now women um, um, are making making so so many groundbreaking discoveries and contributing mm. to the field of science women are um, running their own labs now and um, inspiring uh, more uh, female scientists to get on board um, so I think I think it's a good time for us now to just mm. continue um, sort of uh, adopting this like this this positive sort of um outlook of where how far we've come as uh, women in stem exactly and um i think well i agree obviously with everything that you just said it's it, it's amazing uh, to hear your your opinion about this because you know only throughout history like you said we women we have done so much in science, unfortunately, not really well recognized. But I think now, I still think there is a lot of work to be done. Uh, so we still need to keep, you know, fighting. And that's other of the reasons why I wanted to create this podcast to keep sending these messages and testimonies of this brilliant woman that I am interviewing, like you, you know, just to show, look, she's from Australia. Uh, last week, I interviewed someone from Guatemala, from South, uh, South America, you know, and these are how real woman looks like we do science we you guys are, are rocking everything and and it's really really important to to showcase these messages as well um like i said unfortunately i think we still experience some some bias um you know sometimes we get either 
comments or, or bias when we say an idea or even perhaps when we publish a paper uh, or I don't know if this happens to you, but I've became a, a postdoc since last year <clears throat> and I was still not, not scared. I don't think that's the correct word, but I was like, oh, I still don't feel comfortable using my postdoc title. You know, is it too much? Is it too high? Should I still say that I am towards completing the PhD? Should I say that? No, I don't know. And now technically I'm a senior research associate, uh, you know, so I still feel even myself, you know, that I am advocating for this with the podcast and with other things. Sometimes I still feel shy. That's the word that I was looking for. Not scared, shy. <laughs> That's the word that I was looking for. Uh, like shy to, to share this, you know, and at some point I think we need to think about, hang on, I am this type of associate or I am postdoc or professor or whatever because I have come here, right? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I completely agree. Like, um, I think it's all about, uh, yeah, changing that narrative uh, mm -hmm. that we tell ourselves. And um, uh, at the end of the day, like, who is going to advocate for yourself? But uh, yourself exactly. uh, and owning like all your accomplishments is is something like I'm really uh, I'm really big on that. And uh, that's why, like, I I typically love uh, sharing my accomplishments on social media, mm. retweeting any accomplishments of other people as well, because at the end of the day, it's it's nice to get that normalization sort of of, of yes, I accomplished this and achieved this, and it's okay. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not humble uh, exactly. if I escape it. Um, it's merely exactly what it is. Uh, this is something I uh, was awarded or I published this paper, and it's about being comfortable about cutting any achievement, big or small. Mm -hmm. It's um, like spot on what you should say, because when sometimes, and I don't know why, and I, and I get really upset when this happens, you know, when when a woman is, is sharing her achievements, uh, like either presentations, promotions, uh, papers, whatever, um, achievements in general, we are judge like while wow, she's sharing too much she's bragging about it but when a man does it it's rocking it and smashing it and you are a super professional and this you cannot imagine how upset this gets me you know because sometimes i'm even guilty of doing it myself like oh i really want to share that i did this presentation and people ask me nice questions or i really want to share that people complimenting me on my podcast or on the paper or whatever and sometimes I double think about tweeting it or sharing it because it's like am I gonna be judged because I'm bragging about it so uh, it's just <laughs> gets me yeah so I really agree I think um I actually attended this event I wish I could remember the name but basically we got invited um to it was like a Harvard Medical School mm -hmm. event for postdocs and I can't remember who ran it but basically we um we got to talk about how um women and minorities don't tend to um to talk about their accomplishments yeah. and to uh, showcase them and spread the word and so one of the activities that we were asked to do we got a blank piece of paper on this was back when we actually had in-person workshops which i miss <laughs> now because everything's on zoom so we actually oh. pen and paper and we um we had to write down all our accomplishments or something we were proud of that we had achieved. We just had to write it on, paper, on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the instructor said, 
okay, guys, now I need you to read out everything to everybody, uh, what you just wrote down. And then we were shocked because we weren't going to read it out. Yeah. Um, but then it was, it was about, so the whole point of that was, was to normalize that, to, to share exactly what we were part of with each other. And she even recommended um, doing one of those um, activities, maybe like on a weekly or monthly basis mm. with just like your institute. And so just to, just to make it more comfortable and practice the yes. of, um, talking about uh, what you're part of that you've achieved. Yes, I mean, I think, uh, and, and we were so supportive. Yes. Like everybody, everybody was like, just, oh my god, yes, go for it. Like we were, we were just saying all the things out, and everybody was just cheering us on, like in the crowd. So, um, we we actually felt a lot more empowered from that experience, and it wasn't all that those negative thoughts that, like you were mentioning, or will people think I'm bragging and things like that. Mm. Uh, they were not even not even anywhere to be seen because everybody was just so positive about um, everybody else's achievements. Yeah. I mean, well, that's amazing, Daisy. It must be like, you know, like a revelation, like you said before, uh, with the to-do list, you know, it must be so enriching. Yeah. And I think, I think you also said the correct word. I think we need to feel empowered about what we do and we need to recognize it and and show it because i don't think the problem is that we cannot do the stuff we are even more capable than we think about doing this stuff i think the problem is perhaps social misconceptions or environment or you know beliefs i think the problem is that we we don't feel entitled to to share these things and to recognize that we are smashing it you know uh, that's also, I think is one, I mean, there is more problems obviously, but I think it's one of the big ones, you know? <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously you, you go to these seminars, you know, to these events. Um, I, I follow closely all the seminars that you go because I think they are always super interesting. Uh, so obviously these are learning opportunities for you right uh, this this gives you the opportunity to hear other people and and now even more that everything is online you probably are hearing a lot of perspective from people across the world which i think is even double enriching if that makes sense so could if i ask you um like for the newest for the newer generations uh, someone I don't know, like a girl that is listening to us and is fascinated about the eye as well, like you, or thinking about crossing the world to, to do a, a research career. Could you tell us or tell that, that little girl that is listening to us, what would you say to them? You can say several things. It doesn't have to be only one sentence. <laughs> I, I would tell that little girl to uh, keep going uh if you've got a dream mm. um if you want to be a scientist of anything anything you want to be uh if you have a dream just go for it mm. and persistence is key and don't um don't get disheartened if uh things don't work out the way you thought it would work out uh mm. because chances are it never really works out the way you intended <laughs> and sometimes that is actually a great thing yes. <laughs> um a surprisingly uh, great turn of events and uh, it's all about just persevering. Uh, if you really do believe in this particular dream of yours, uh, whether it be to be a scientist or anything uh, that you wish, uh, just go for it and uh, keep going. Um, people are there to support you. You'll find your tribe and network of, 
uh, support and um, just mentors and they will just uh, enable you to accomplish whatever you like. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm, I totally agree with everything that you just said. It's, it's actually what I will say as well to the newer generation. So I'm pretty sure who, I mean, I'm inspired by you, by this chat. Uh, so just, you know, like anyone that listens to us, I'm pretty sure they are going to feel super inspired as well. Um, so thank you so much uh, because it has been an amazing interview. It didn't feel like an interview on this interview. Sounds super formal. Uh, it's just felt, I just feel like I've, I know you forever. <laughs> oh, this has been so fun. Uh, yeah. It's been so fun to chat. Definitely didn't feel like an interview either. It felt like a, a really fun chat exactly. with my best friend. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> So thank you so much, uh, Daisy, for accepting it and for giving us, you know, this masterclass in, in your research and, and also in your views about women in science as well. I've learned so much from you. And I honestly hope that in any point of our lives we meet because it's going to be so much fun. <laughs> yes, we have to. We absolutely need to. Oh, yes. Like, you are really far from me right now, but I don't care. Like, we have to meet. Some... I can fly to you. Oh, <laughs> you don't need to fly. <laughs> it's going to be cold. Uh, pretty any time of the year that you come, it's going to be cold. It's the UK. We know about it. But don't worry. I have blankets. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be as bad as Boston winters, so... I, I've been through a lot with the, the cold. Oh yeah, I can I can imagine. Uh, but yeah, I, I really hope we, we meet in any point of, of our careers and thank you again so much uh, for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yay! <laughs>